As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Eileen Warnos are voiced by an actor. She killed seven men in cold blood. She did not kill in self-defense, but instead was motivated by hatred of men. There's no chance of stairs in keeping me alive or anything, because I kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. Seven men murdered, only six bodies found. From 1989 to 1990, these men fell victim to sex worker Eileen Warnos as she hitchhiked along Florida's highways. Some were just giving a woman in need a ride. Others parted money for sex, but they all paid the price, as picking her up cost them their lives. Was Eileen's murder spree fueled by rage and anger after decades of abuse at the hands of men? What's the real story of this rock-loving biker chick dubbed the Damsel of Death? Over the course of six episodes, we speak with detectives, witnesses, and experts to delve into the case of Eileen Warnos, tracking her notoriety as America's first female serial killer, and questioning if she, too, was a victim. We will also deep dive inside the mind of a monster, hearing Eileen's innermost thoughts and feelings from letters she sent from death row to her best friend, Dawn. I'm criminal psychologist, Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is season five of Mind of a Monster, Eileen Warnos, episode four, Killer Queen. To look at Eileen Warnos, she's not your stereotypical serial killer. For starters, she's a woman. She's small and petite with bouncing, silky blonde hair. Her best friend Dawn remembers Eileen always wanted to look presentable, brushing her hair and wearing makeup. But despite her outward appearance, Eileen is now committed to the kill. She has brutally shot and murdered five men, one victim having the gun emptied on him, 
with nine bullets fired through his chest. And on September 11, 1990, she takes the life of victim number six. The body is found in Marion Oaks, Marion County. David Taylor was a lead detective overseeing this homicide. I had been informed that two young lads uh, riding bicycles in an undeveloped subdivision had actually come across a body. When they found this body, they bicycled home as quick as they could. They notified their parents what they had discovered. And it was the parents of these two children that had notified uh, law enforcement by calling 911. Did you realize it was a homicide pretty much instantly? The general rule is all suspicious deaths are treated as homicide until we can, you know, disprove or prove one theory. And um, you know, a, a lot of work goes in early on, because in, in this case, uh, we were already behind the clock. Uh, the clock was already ticking. You saw the body. Can you describe that moment? I remember when I arrived at the Charles Humphreys crime scene, you had a overwhelming police presence. Uh, you had a lot of yellow crime scene tape up around the immediate crime scene. And, you know, darkness was setting in. When I approached the remains, I could see that he was that of a white male, middle-aged, well-dressed in professional-type attire. You know, he looked well-dressed. But what did I really notice? I could tell that he, it was apparent, had been shot multiple times. So he was fully clothed, and some of the other victims were found naked, and this could indicate he wasn't paying for sex. One of the things that I quickly noticed was that his belt was not undone, his zipper was not undone. There was nothing that would indicate any type of redress or a state of redress. His shirt was not pulled out. So what else really stuck out in my mind? You know, well, there wasn't any vehicle around. So here you have this guy, we're pretty sure he didn't walk there, but how did he get there? And he was found at the end of a cul-de-sac uh, by a culvert. And uh, he was laying basically on his right side and his legs bent upward at the knee. We know, we know Eileen's shooting seemed to escalate in severity. Four bullets, then six, nine. Did this seem like a particularly brutal attack? Anytime you're shot, you know, that's, that's pretty brutal. You know, this guy was shot, you know, multiple times. And... Uh, there was one wound that, you know, almost looked like he was in a defensive type position uh, that was, uh, you know, on his, near his wrist, like his hands were up, you know, almost like uh, in front of his face, like, don't shoot, or he's defending himself. Which indicates this guy isn't being shot in self-defense. He's defending himself. We found what appeared to be uh, that of a, some type of an impact injury on the right side, his abdomen. And it just, it was circular, and it resembled that of a gun barrel. So, uh, you know, that was a very significant find. My initial gut instinct was that he was most likely a victim of robbery. Uh, the reason why I say that is because the pants pockets were turned inside out. When you have a situation like that, what is your game plan? You have to work feverishly to identify your person. David and his team estimate the victim's age, height, and weight. He's been shot with a 22 caliber gun. But with limited information and no ID, 
they issue an alert to surrounding counties that a body has been found. The bulletin is seen by police in nearby Sumter County, Florida. They responded and said the day prior that they had taken a missing persons report. Dear Don, a 22 was for shooting birds. One shot would never do a thing, and the assailant would still be fighting with you, even after five shots like Humphreys. The bullets didn't even phase him until the wounds started to take an effect. Investigators from Sumter County race to the crime scene, and within just a few hours, a positive ID is made. The victim is 56-year-old Charles Humphreys. He's been married for 35 years and has grown children. Humphreys has just retired from the police in Florida as a child abuse investigator. He went missing after his last day on the job. Once we got the name, we worked literally all night long into the early morning hours the next day, uh, running down these travels. Um, like I said, once we had the name, we had his work schedule, we knew who the people were that he was uh, to make contact with in his job that day. So yeah, a lot of doors were knocked on at three, four, five o'clock in the morning to dig up what we could. Uh, he had worked with the uh, police chief, actually, with the Sylacauga, Alabama Police Department. And then prior to that, he had a very distinguished uh, military uh, career. And did it have a bigger impact on you, given he was a fellow officer? You know, but it was in the back of your mind that he was uh, basically a fellow officer. I'm not going to say it didn't make us work harder, but it, it did, you know, just um, because of what he represented. He was working for the state as a child abuse uh, investigator. And it was that job that uh, took his life. Yeah, I, I, it makes perfect sense to me. How much of an impact did this case have on your personal life? Or just you as a person? I think about any homicide investigator will tell you that they work in what we call a busy house, uh, where you have your fair share of violent crime. Uh, it is hard on your personal life. It is hard on your social life. Uh, when you look at where we are today with science, technology, DNA, with what you know the new guys have compared with what we had you know, back in the late 80s, uh, you know we burn a lot of the midnight oil. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience, there were quite a few cases where we didn't go home. Uh, I can tell you there were cases where for two or three days at a time, you don't see your wife, you, know, you don't see your children, because you're out running down leads. So, yeah, this case did take a toll uh, because of the nature of the case. And you had to support the family of Charles Humphreys when they got that awful news. I did uh, meet his wife. Uh, I did stay in contact with the Humphreys family for quite some time after the homicide. Um, and I remember on multiple occasions uh, when his widow, Shirley Humphreys, would actually come to Ocala. Uh, she would even stop in our office um, and ask for me. And uh, I would always go up to the lobby and meet with her and talk with her. Um, they were a super family. And, um, you know, and, and it's tough to talk about this because of what happened and knowing that I was right on the heels of their anniversary. And um, it's it just it's just a good family and knowing his background and um, 
she even gifted me, this was years after the fact, uh, one of the textbooks that he had had when he was going through a college program dealing with criminal justice that had some personal notations in it and um, why she decided to gift that, you know, memento to me, you know, I don't know. Uh, but I do feel with hindsight, there was a connection that I had with that family. As we've just heard, Charles Humphreys worked in law enforcement, was married, and was fully dressed when his body was found. Also, some of his bullet wounds suggest he had been defending himself. Eileen is an unusual serial killer because throughout her life she has shown signs of giving love, having empathy, and really caring for people such as Tyria, her brother, and her grandma. We heard in the previous episode how Eileen maintained that Mallory attacked her, but if victims such as Charles Humphreys did not use her for sex or abuse her, then why shoot them dead? I want to go to the thoughts of childhood trauma expert Dr. Tasha Jackson. Eileen maintained until the day she died that Richard Mallory either raped her or tried to rape her. And then some of the other victims, like Peter Sims, he was just a missionary man. He was literally just trying to help a woman he saw in need. I don't think it's this direct, but there's this idea that it could be that Mallory raped her and that set her on this trajectory. It triggered her to kill six more men, even if they weren't threats. Do you have an opinion about that? So, you know, there's part of me that wants to believe everybody. So let's just go down that road first. <laughs> makes sense that she got raped and that set her off as a self-defense. And that makes sense of the fight or flight and she went into a fight mode. What I read from her, what I thought was interesting, was almost like once she killed again, she somehow rationalized that once I've crossed this barrier, then I've crossed it and there's no going back. And so we have a way of all of us rationalize our behavior to being okay. And it, it crossed a threshold for her. Now, I think it's interesting. We have real fear and we have perceived fear. And was there something that she still got triggered into perceived threat that maybe wasn't a threat, but it was that same feeling? So if there was a victim who was no threat at all, they could have done anything, something as simple as how they hold the wheel or which cassette they played. Something innocent could have made her feel that perceived fear and threat. Maybe I, I can use an example of sometimes when people are trying to get sober, you don't play the same music because it can bring up everything you did when you were high, right? And so here it is, she's back in a situation where she's doing sex work and what maybe would have triggered back to that experience of being raped in that? I don't know. I'll take the, again, trusting the story here that he wasn't a threat, but what did she pick up on physiologically that it was like programmed, put into her body, like that was there, that it was that same sort of feeling for her? Real and perceived is a real interesting thing, part about like abandonment or fear. We have to look at what is perceived from that individual, their story. Back in Marion County, police are tracing Charles Humphrey's last steps. They visit every possible place he could have stopped along the I-75 highway. 
And wherever they stop, they ask store clerks if they recognize the two female suspects in the composite sketch. Former Marion County Chief of Police Brian Jarvis tells me no stone was left unturned. He had last been seen near a truck stop on I-75. We went in and showed the composites to the clerk at the truck stop, and she thought that two girls that looked like that had been in there about the same time that he had been missing from the area. So now we felt we had a really good link to it. So it's, it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle, and you're putting the pieces together. And they're exciting pieces, because it's like, okay, A, it looks like it's a serial situation, and B, it looks like it could be a, whim- a woman. Like, that's, that's unusual. Yes. She said they were acting kind of giddy. She felt pretty sure that they were in there between 4 and 4.30 in the afternoon, which would have been about the same time that Mr. Humphreys had stopped there. So not only do police have a lead, but the brunette suspect, Tyria, has now been seen in the truck stop store with Eileen when Humphreys went missing. She was also seen fleeing the car of Peter Sims. Could Tyria have been involved? Brian Jarvis. As far as any involvement Tyria had, we know that she was driving Peter Sims' car when it crashed. We believed that she had been at the convenience store because of the ID that the clerk had made when Mr. Humphreys was taken. Makes sense. You mentioned earlier about the stolen cars, how the driver's seats were in the forward position, suggesting a smaller person was driving. But we also know that some of these bodies were dragged deep into the woods. So do you think she was acting alone? Because Tyria always denied direct involvement and was never charged with anything. Based on the evidence that we found, at least on some of the homicides, it would indicate that Aileen was acting alone. But as I said, with Peter Sims, Tyria was driving his car. Now, that doesn't mean she was involved in his death, because that had been a month earlier. Right. But she was in his vehicle. With Mr. Humphreys, the clerk believed that there were two women in there. So there, there's some speculation there. Shortly after Charles Humphreys' death, Eileen strikes again, shooting her seventh victim, Walter Antonio, to death. With seven men now savagely killed in less than a year, it's a race against time for police to stop the suspect from killing again, and again, and again. The composite sketch is released to the media. Overnight, it makes front page headlines. Rhonda is the witness who saw Eileen and Tyria wreck the car of victim Peter Sims. Rhonda tells me about the moment she realizes she's come face to face with a killer. I had no idea who they were until uh, I seen their uh, their picture or sketch on the the evening news and uh, watched that story about uh, the serial killer and that they were looking for these people. And I'm like, you know, I kind of put blonde and one's brunette. And I, well, those girls that wrecked here yesterday, that could have been them. You must have been shocked. What did you do? And I called the, the, the sheriff's department and I told them what happened. And they're like, oh yeah, well, I guess they must have had a lot of calls. 
but they sent a detective out, and I, he goes, well, where did they wreck? And I pointed over there across the road, and I said, well, that's where the car landed. And he's like, he didn't believe me. Oh. I said, I'll tell you how you know if it's the right car or not. Uh, she went through a barbed wire fence. If that's the same car that you're looking for, it will have those scratches from a barbed wire fence all up and down the, the hood and uh, the roof of the car. He was gone for about a minute. The next thing I know, uh, here comes the cops. There must have been 20 squad cars out there and helicopters overhead, and Channel 20 News and Channel 2 News out there. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And the rest is history, I guess. Men all over Florida are afraid to offer rides to women hitchhiking, and even those picking up sex workers feel nervous. For Brian Jarvis, the media coverage is both a help and a hindrance. The public was enamored by this. The twist that was put on it by the media, that she was a prostitute and that all these men were Johns, added to that fuel. And we would later see that that wasn't the case. I think what the media was trying to portray was that all these guys were Johns. They were all picking her up for sex, and I don't buy into that because of what we found. And I think with each and every case, we can, we can see where the victim had stopped for food or fuel or uh, something to drink maybe, and at some point run into Aileen. When I first started in law enforcement, I had a very small view of what was going on. Uh, you know, just a very limited view of what was going on. And never in my life did I think I'd be involved in a case like this. Never in my life did I think I'd be working on a case involving a serial killer. She's gotten away with it so far, but the hunt is now on for the women in the composite drawing. And thanks to a discovery in a local pawn shop, the net is closing in. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. 
Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like, are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Two women drawn in the composite sketch are still on the loose, and police are stepping up the search. They have a hunch. With Florida being a transient state, pawn shops can be seen on nearly every corner. Detective David Taylor already knows items have been stolen from victims, with some objects found dumped, thrown from vehicles. But could this serial killer be selling the belongings too? In December 1990, they discover a radar detector and camera in a pawn shop. The original owner? Victim number one, Richard Mallory. If someone were to pawn an item in one of the pawn shops throughout the state of Florida, they had to leave behind an index print on that pawn ticket. We had a radar detector, a camera that had been pawned, and on that pawn ticket, there was an index print. There was no match in the AFA system, a decision was made to actually hand check these fingerprints. And Jenny Ahern, back in the day, uh, was a fingerprint specialist with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement at their crime lab. Uh, she began this mountain task of actually trying to find this fingerprint, literally looking for the needle in the haystack. Police have a solid piece of forensic evidence a bloodied palm print from inside of Peter Sims' wrecked car. If the fingerprint left at the pawn shop can be matched to this, it will reveal the name of the killer. It's December 21st, 1990, and at the request of police, fingerprint expert Jenny Ahern has just arrived in Volusia County. She has a mammoth task ahead. Jenny's job is to manually flick through thousands of files with images of fingerprints and try to match them to the fingerprint from the crime scene with just her own eyes. Jenny described this painstaking process when she spoke to the Mind of a Monster team in 2020. Almost an unbelievable task that you will never be able to do because it's the number of cards that we were going to be facing and having to look at would be like trying to win the lottery. And I'm talking a huge lottery. And what, when we do that, do we really think we're gonna ever win? No. But it was something that we thought it was important enough that we had to do this. Whether or not we identified it or not, we had to at least try. Eventually, she hits the jackpot. I came across a card and it was one of those feelings like, this cannot be happening. This is impossible. I think I just won megabucks. And I took the print like this, and then took my glass, 
and it was one of those feelings where you can't, you don't feel like you can even breathe because this cannot be happening. Um, so after that, because we believe in verification and because of the importance of this, I had both of my coworkers look at that print as well. And we all agreed that it was an identification and we had a name of Eileen Warnos on that fingerprint card. We flipped it over and on the back it said that um, it was a um, white female, about the same height that they had said, and that there was, uh, the person had been arrested for uh, a weapons charge, and I believe it was a 22, which was the same type of weapon that she had been using. It was almost breathtaking, but so exhilarating. It was really unbelievable, because we really thought Christmas was not gonna happen, that we were gonna be here, we were gonna be here forever, and uh, it was just gonna be an unending task, and for us to finish in 15 minutes was just crazy. The police finally know who their killer is. Eileen Warnus. When a fingerprint match was eventually made, the bloody palm print was eventually matched to the known prints of Aileen Warnus from a prior arrest. And it was at that point we knew we could put Aileen Warnus inside Peter Sims' vehicle. The police are now hunting Eileen. They have prints, but also one huge problem. There are no grounds to charge for a homicide case. Peter Sims' body has not been found, and they can't prove Eileen has killed simply because her fingerprint is found inside a stolen vehicle. The only way for them to prove she has murdered is with a confession. And to do that, they need a specialist to go undercover. I speak to Detective Taylor about Mike Joyner's role. Tell me who Mike Joyner is and why he was needed. Mike Joyner is probably one of the best undercover police officers I've met in my career. And I've met quite a few. Uh, Mike was a, a detective with the Citrus County Sheriff's Office. Uh, his specialty was undercover operations, undercover investigations. When information came to us that we focused our efforts in Volusia County in the area of Port Orange. Um, he played a critical role. Uh, his job was to scour the bars and find a person who looked like the person in this composite. Mike was bouncing covertly from bar to bar for days before finally striking gold on January 8, 1991. The location? The Last Resort Bar in Port Orange, Eileen's favorite drinking hole. Sadly, Mike has passed away, but he spoke on the Mind of a Monster documentary about the moment he spotted Eileen. When I first walked in the other bar, I saw her. Uh, I don't, in that picture right there, you can't tell unless you look at it real close, but she had a scar over her left eye, and it was pretty noticeable. And when I walked in, that's the first thing I saw was her and I scarred over her, and I knew that was her. I had another guy with me, and I said, told him, I said, Dick, leave. Don't put it, don't be with me. Don't associate yourself with me. Leave. Go to a telephone somewhere, call the command post, and tell them I got my eyeballs on her, and I'm not leaving until it's time 
to take her down. And that's exactly how I first met her. And my first thought was, we got her. We got her in our sight. I'm not gonna let her out of my sight. That means she's not gonna kill no more people. But I'm not gonna let her get away. I went and billed up to the bar to her and uh, started talking to her. And I, I asked her if she wanted a beer and she said, certainly. And I bought her a beer and she said, can you buy me some cigarettes? Well, I had probably $500 in my pocket. So I pulled it all out and paid it for her. She seen all that money. And honestly, it, it wasn't my talent. It wasn't what I'd done. Is that Eileen seen that money and she was gonna take close to me because I had all that money in my pocket. Mike fabricates a story. He tells Eileen he came in from Georgia to kill two people who ripped him off over 70 kilos of coke, and the pair start to drink together. With police staking out nearby, the undercover team call in to say Eileen is inside the bar. Game on. The Last Resort Biker Bar has now become the stage for one of the most important undercover operations of Mike Joyner's career. I want to know what it was like for Detective Taylor and the team waiting outside, knowing Mike was sitting with a serial killer. We have a vehicle across the street set up with uh, <clears throat> audio-visual equipment to record video. Mike was wired for sound, so we could uh, you know, capture everything possible. It's all about gathering evidence. Yeah. Did he describe to you the atmosphere inside there? I mean, it. you guys are so close. Was he nervous, excited? How were you guys all feeling? First of all, it's safety. You know, we want everyone to go home at the end of their shift, you know, to be with family. Uh, but it's also high risk. You know, why is it high risk? Well, you're looking at a possible female uh, that's suspected of killing all these guys. So, uh, you know, where's the gun? You know, uh, what type of other weapons does she have on herself? So. Um, you know, it really is. A, it's a very stressful uh, situation. Mike Joyner recounts a pivotal and intense moment in the undercover investigation. He had a bag and a pocketbook, and that was one of the things I wasn't going to let get out of my sight because I honestly thought she had the murder weapon in the bag or the order. It wasn't a suitcase, it was like a tote case. And I honestly thought she had the gun in there. And I wasn't gonna let the those two, the gun or I mean the uh, the bag and the suitcase. I wasn't gonna let them go. I wasn't gonna let her go. I mean she ain't go, she wasn't leaving. She's telling me to bring all my money and take her out. And she's gonna show me a good time. But I she told me that I knew I was the next victim, and that's when I put the wire. On. The audio you're about to hear is from undercover surveillance footage being recorded by police officers outside the bar, communicating with Mike Joyner, who is inside with Eileen. We gotta do something now. You think this is Cross Street? Maybe she'll come out and show us directions. Terry, so tell him we can get him outside. We can get her outside the bar and then go back in and get her stuff. Dick and I both can identify her pocketbook and her suitcases being her stuff. If we don't, I don't know what time she's gonna leave that for. 
but we need to get out there now because they're going to have a big fucking party here tonight. For Mike, it must have been a terrifying moment. He heads to the bathroom and updates the team anxiously staking out. I want to know from Detective Taylor what happened next. Video operations were underway. Audio recordings were underway. So many decisions have to be made. You're working with prosecutors. You're working with senior law enforcement staff. You know, how are we going to play this card that we've been dealt? How are we going to take her into custody? And you have all these. You know, you're looking at the safety of the people, the safety of the patrons, the safety of the people that are outside driving by this four-lane highway, you know, going right down Port Orange. But eventually, a decision was made to get her to come outside. Mike persuades Eileen to leave with him by suggesting they go to a motel. But before leaving, Eileen makes a call from inside the bar to check that a room has been booked. Did he put it in a girl's name? What? I can't stand this. Hey, ma'am. I got the room, okay? Okay, this lady's gonna come stay in it because I've got to leave, all right? Okay, she's gonna come stay in. I give her the key. I've already paid you for the room. I give you a $5 deposit for the key. Okay, she's gonna stay in a room number 11, right? As soon as they exit, the police swoop in on them. To avoid blowing Mike's cover, they pretend Mike's involved and handcuff him while arresting Eileen on an outstanding warrant. The moment was recorded by police. What's over here, Mike? What's your name, pal? Hey. My name's Jones, man. What's wrong? My name is Investigator Hordapo with the Sheriff's Office of Volusia County Warrants Division. Yeah, let's see some identification. I ain't got none, man. Let me see some identification. I ain't got no identification. Let me see some identification. I ain't got no fucking identification, man. I ain't got no. I ain't got no fucking identification, man. I ain't got no. Let's see some identification. Eileen is in the back of the police car with Mike who makes a last-ditch attempt to get her to confess. What's going on, girl? I don't know. I don't know what the hell's going on. What kind of fucking trouble are you in? I don't know what's going on. So what the hell? You want to tell me? You tell me. Tell me! We got the back seat. I kind of went off on her a little bit and asked her what, you know, what the hell are you doing to me? I ain't done, I ain't done nothing. And she said, they think I killed a man. I said, well, you stupid bitch, did you? And then she did go on. She had a clip that she kept a lot of keys on her belt. After she was arrested, they took those keys and tracked them back to a storage shed. When they tracked that key back to that storage shed and got a search warrant, every man she killed she kept pursuing her own. Dear Dawn, the only trial I wish to see is in the higher courts of heaven, where there is no injustice but pure righteousness. He knew what these men have done to me since I left home. He knows why I went off, pushed overboard by their wicked ways. Eileen is finally caught and taken into custody. Her serial killing spree has ended. 
but her journey is far from over. Next time on Mind of a Monster, one of the most high-profile criminal trials in the history of America is about to begin. Mind of a Monster Eileen Warnos is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Harriet Mortar. Editor is Millie Tapner. Audio engineering is by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. Our archive producer is Katia Lom. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our edit producer is Finn Bunting. Arrow Media's series producer is Gabrielle Nash, and executive producer is Stuart Pender. Eileen Warnos is played by Vicki Thorne. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Nickelodeon was kid everything. But that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set. An ID true crime event. Sunday, March 17th at 9 on ID and stream on Max.